You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. I'm Drew Leiter. And I'm Cletus Jacob. And welcome to episode 365 of the Earth Station DCU. Tonight we're going to talk Batman Off-World number 2, Hawkgirl number 6, Jay Garrick the Flash number 3, Green Lantern War Journal number 4, Batman Superman World's Finest number 22, Catwoman number 60, Nightwing number 109, Superman number 9, Wonder Woman number 4, and Sweet Tooth Season 2 Episode 4, Batman. But before we get into that, let's talk some DC news. Alright Cletus, first up for DC news. James Gunn has confirmed that Ta-Nehisi Coates and J.J. Abrams' Superman movie is apparently still in the works. The film was announced back in 2021, well before Gunn and Peter Safran took over as heads of DC Studios. Though no plot details have been revealed, it's been reported that the movie will feature the first black Superman. Yeah, Drew, I was strongly under the impression that this film had just sort of gotten lost in the shuffle. Obviously, there's no guarantee that this thing's still going to get made. Uh, you know, it's still very much, I think, up in the air. But at least at one point, Michael B. Jordan, the actor, his production company was also tied to this project. Now, they never officially said that he was supposed to star in it, but a lot of people just sort of assumed that he'd end up playing Superman. And specifically, at least at one point, Drew, it was meant to be Val Zod, who we've been actually reading about in the comics recently. I assume that that's who it would be if they if this movie does continue in production and get made. I'd be pretty thrilled if Jordan does end up playing him because I really really enjoy him as an actor. But we'll see. We'll see, Drew. I I uh, I gotta admit I thought the, the the film was long since dead, so I don't really know. Yeah, I thought it was too. So I was surprised to see that news. So that's pretty cool. And I believe this movie is gonna be out of canon, so it won't be part of the new DCU. But that's fine. I think we need to have stuff that's canon, and I think we need to have some stuff that's on its own. And uh, I like the fact that they're doing both. And with the multiverse, there's no, there's nothing that says you can't have both, right? Have it be his own world, but hypothetically, you know, future possibility of crossing over in some sort of, you know, Crisis on Infinite Earths version or whatever, whatever it is. I'm with you, Drew. I don't need everything to be set in the same universe. I think all that does is set it up for everything collapsing if it doesn't work right like if you at least keep stuff separate some of that stuff can still keep going the batman franchise for example i agree with it not being sandwiched into whatever james gunn is doing not because i don't like what james gunn's vision is going to be but diversify the portfolio right (laughs) don't put all your eggs in one basket exactly and that way you can have projects that stand on their own that don't need to tie into everything so All right, and for our last bit of DC news, Rachel Brosnahan has already started prepping for her upcoming role as Lois Lane in James Gunn's Superman Legacy. I'm stalking my journalist friends right now, Brosnahan told Entertainment Weekly. I'm just trying to understand a little bit more deeply kind of how that mindset works. So it'll be interesting to see what her portrayal of Lois Lane will look like. I agree. I'm... I'm very optimistic about the new Superman film, Drew. I, you know, I don't really know a lot about the core cast 
personally, but that's okay. I, I'm I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful, and if it does, you know, if it is the movie that we hope it is, Drew, that's going to be big. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty optimistic about it too. I mean, we've got Guardians of the Galaxy, Peacemaker, some of the other stuff that James Gunn has done, and uh, I like that stuff. So I'm looking forward to see what he can do with Superman. All right, well that wraps up DC news for this week. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll do our comics talk. All right, monkeying around, start talking. About your podcast. We talk about an Emmy-winning comedy series. We talk about a band who outsold the Beatles and the Stones in 1967. Still sticking to that story, huh? Well, if you know what's good for you, you'll change your tune. We talk about a groundbreaking multimedia project. That inspired generations of artists and fans. All right, throw the book at them. This book is overdue. Monkeying Around, a podcast about the monkeys. As the temperatures get cooler, let's think back to a time where monsters fascinated our young minds. Where haunted houses and flying saucers were the stuff of fantastical dreams. Come relive those wonderful times with us every Monday at 5 p.m. It's Monster Attack on the ESO Network. And we're back. But before we get into this week's comic books talk, we got to let you know there's going to be spoilers. We got spoilers. 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 We got spoilers for you. We got spoilers. Spoilers. We've got spoilers for you, for you. <laughs> All right, let's talk Batman Off-World number two. On the spaceship Warstorm, Batman along with others have been tasked with cleaning debris from the engines. One of the guards tells Batman that he did it wrong because no one died. When the guard throws the alien that Batman just saved back into the engine to die, Batman punches him, breaking his tusk. Batman gets into a brawl, and it takes three dozen stormers to bring him down. Not long before the incident, Batman had been training with a punch bot. Ione comes along and shows Batman how to take down a Branks male. Ione agrees to teach Batman to fight. In their cell, Ione tells Batman that Captain Sin thinks the cells are getting a little crowded and plans to thin the herd. Ione and Batman break out of their cells to make their escape. Punchbot makes his way to the bridge and shuts down the stellar hurricane that surrounds the ship. An escape can be made. Ione goes to the escape ship while Batman takes on Captain Sin and loses. Batman is pushed out the airlock. Punchbot is able to fire an escape pod in Batman's direction. Batman's escape pod crash lands on Akari, a moon that was mined and discarded by the Black Sun Mining Company. The survivors are meat for the starving beasts, alien wolves. Batman goes hunting for the wolves. To be continued. I love seeing the initial payoff of the training that Batman's been doing, Drew. Again, this whole thing feels very, you know, keyed in on the Batman character and making Batman in space feel believable, right? Because again, even in this issue here, he's clearly gotten better because he's Batman, but he's still not good enough. And that's what I think one of the reasons this book is working for me, Drew, is that, you know, it leans into the whole Batman can basically do anything if he sets his mind to it and trains enough. 
but they're not making it easy, right? That they're showing that, yeah, uh, we, I think we all know Batman's going to win by the end of the comic, right? But what's fun, and I think what's making the book work, is there is how hard that journey is shown to be. He's not just cakewalking through this whole thing, and that makes it a much more enjoyable read. I agree with you. It's not the destination here. It's the journey, and the journey's been very interesting. I like how they made Punchbot a character, and I don't know if we'll see him again, but I hope so, because I kind of like Punchbot. <laughs> it felt like we maybe have seen the last of him, but you, you never know for sure. Obviously, the ship is still intact, so there's no reason for it not to be salvaged potentially later on. The only minor nitpick I had, Drew, was the Batman's escape onto the pod i would have preferred uh, them showing us him getting into the escape pod because i feel like that's implied right but it, all we see is him grabbing onto the escape pod as it flies off which again he had to have gotten inside the pod right <laughs> i just kind of wanted to see it drew just because there's a this the way it's portrayed it theoretically could be suggesting that batman just held on and held his breath. <laughs> yeah, and that's a little far-fetched. <laughs> it was already, was... like, even him catching on for a ride and then, like, grappling his way into the thing. It's like, I mean, okay, it's Batman. Like, okay, but I would have, I, I just, I would have preferred a slightly cleaner escape, Drew. Like, I know he needed to lose that fight, and it needed to be an ugly scene, so I don't want to contradict myself on that. Like, I like that he lost, and he's put into a hard spot right at the end of the comic, but it was a, it, we were a little bit close to Batman jumping from the moon. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I thought when I saw that scene, too. <laughs> but I did the same thing. I assumed he got into that escape pod also, because how else would he have survived? <laughs> Had to Right. I'm not doubting that, and I don't think that the comic is suggesting that he didn't get into the pod. I just, to be, to be frank, Drew, I would have preferred some other method of escape. Just, again, I don't need it to be super believable. I just need it, like, like a notch, one notch closer to believable for me is what I needed. I agree with you. All right, well, let's move on to our next title for this week. Hot Girl number six, The Nymph World. Hawkgirl is trapped in another dimension and is on a desperate hunt to find Galaxy and a way home. Hawkgirl seeks out Old Mulder, who leads her to Volpecula. Volpecula has Galaxy under her control. Galaxy attacks Hawkgirl and the two fight. Hawkgirl is able to turn into birds. Hawkgirl asks Volpecula what she gave Galaxy to be her puppet. Volpecula states nothing. Hawkgirl replies that in the Nynth world, you can't take without giving something back. Hawkgirl states Vulpecula broke the one rule that this world has, and now her power is gone. Galaxy is free. Aesop, the spirit of Nynth world, explains that the borders between dimensions have been damaged by the explosion that brought Vulpecula and Hawkgirl to this place. When the borders collapse, both dimensions will be annihilated. Only the sacrifice of millions of lives will repair the damage. Hawkgirl states that she has millions of lives, offers them up. Birds fly out of Kendra and repair the damage. Right before the portal between worlds closes, Galaxy pulls Hawkgirl through. The Nynth world still owed Galaxy a favor, so she asks for Hawkgirl back. Aesop knights Kendra and gives her a new sword that transforms into a mace. Aesop tells Kendra the world will become whatever she needs. Kendra and Galaxy return to Earth and celebrate with their friends. The End 
for now. I don't know about you, Cletus, but I didn't really care for this issue that much. No, I mean, what the hell is this issue, Drew? It jumped. It felt like we had missed an issue. Like, I know that the end of the last one established that Volpaquila had, had, like, sort of gotten her claw in, right? And had succeeded in her scheme, at least temporarily. But then there's this huge plot jump, this issue, Drew, that really never fully makes sense. And the artwork really doesn't help it in this one, where we see when Kendra is trying to confront Volpaquila, she's, like, wrapped up in something... And it's never really explained, and then it eventually becomes part of her prison. Like there was just there was so much in this Drew that just went fully unexplained. That like they just expected the reader to understand what they were looking at, what had happened that they didn't cover, and what was going on that they weren't fully addressing. I was like, who is understanding this comic other than the guy or sorry the gal actually writing this? Not me, I can tell you that. And it looks like they're trying to make a new status quo for Hawkgirl. She doesn't reincarnate anymore, I'm guessing. And all those past lives are gone. So she doesn't even have a memory of it. I don't think that that's new, Drew. I think they got rid of the reincarnation with... Because Kendra is not Shaira. And they've been... Kendra came over... She was she was originally, Drew, the Earth 2 Hawkgirl. So from the same comic series in the world that... Valzad came from and then with a lot of the like weird you know morphing stuff together and merging stuff together Kendra has been the hot girl moving forward which is I is fine with me I really don't care but so I you know it's never really she's never really had that as a part of her character the way that like the hot girl that you and I might be more familiar with has had okay Regardless, dude, this was such a messy issue. I, I And again, this whole series has just been really disappointing to me because it doesn't... I mean, it got... I will give them some, like, the, the smallest amount of credit in that it did become more about Hot Girl as the series went along, but still not enough for my taste. And then just a completely incomprehensible conclusion to the story. Yeah, I didn't really care for it myself. All right, well, let's move on to our next title for this week. Jay Garrick, The Flash, number three. A hidden base in Wautauk Cannon, Germany, 1941. The JSA are investigating this lab. The Flash believes they were attempting to make super soldiers. A villain appears and the JSA attempt to stop him. They are unable to because the villain has the ability to control the elements. Suddenly, the boom appears, coming from the future. She super punches the villain, knocking him clear across the lab. The boom has come from the future to help out her dad. With his armor damaged, the villain presses a self-destruct button and takes off on a rocket ship. The Flash launches the boom into the air and she lands on the rocket's cockpit. The boom damages the controls. The villain snatches a sample of her blood and then ejects from the rocket. Unconscious, the boom falls back towards the earth, but is caught by her father. Terrific tech present day. The Flash states the last time they saw the robo-bear that attacked Judy and Courtney at the mall was at Dr. Elemental's lab during World War II. Mr. Terrific explains that Jay and Judy are experiencing memory realignment. When there is a temporal disruption, it changes reality as we know it, including memories. That is the reason Dr. Elemental was forgotten until Judy reappeared. 
Judy explains that before she was pulled out of time, she saw the real face of Dr. Elemental, but she is finding it hard to remember who it was. Mr. Terrific's son, Jeffrey, has created a memory imager. Using the memory imager, Jeffrey is able to bring up Judy's memories. They discover that Dr. Elemental is Professor Hughes, the man responsible for Jay Garrick becoming the Flash. Next, the origin of Jay Garrick, Judy Garrick, and Dr. Elemental. I don't know about you, Cletus, but I'm kind of interested in the next issue because I don't think I know the origin of Jay Garrick. So I'd be interested to see that. The only thing is, I, I don't know his origin, so I can't compare what they're going to tell us in the next issue to what it was previously, if they've changed anything. Drew, I'm with you. I don't really, I'm not super familiar with his origin either, so I don't know if that's a new wrinkle with, with him or not, to be honest with you. I, I am curious to see whatever their new origin is going to be, and I might actually take some time to go back and reread, or I shouldn't say reread, but read the first Jay Garrick uh, appearance and maybe see how they potentially line up. One comment I had on this issue, Drew, was the idea of the boom going back in time and helping the younger version of her father, I think on paper is a really cool idea. However, I do worry that that could potentially really muddle things and make things a little confusing where you have her kind of flitting back and forth where she's supposed to be in, theoretically supposed to be in that era, but also in the present era. I mean, you could say that really about any Flash character, but I, I, I like the idea, Drew, but I also am aware that that could potentially get really confusing really quickly. Yeah, I can understand that. And I think I think part of the reason why she's going back is she's going back to a time she remembers. She's a fish out of water in the present time because, you know, originally her timeline was way back then. So <laughs> she remembers her father when he was younger, and in the present day, her father is a lot older along with her, her mother. So I, I have a feeling going back in into the past is going back to a version of her father she's f more familiar with. And that's probably why she's going back. I don't know if they'll explain that in the issue or not, but uh, at least that's my take on it. All right, well, let's move on to our next title for this week. Green Lantern War Journal number four. The Planet Durla. Lord Premier Theros receives the refugees of Euphorix and welcomes them to their new home in the name of the United Planets. It is only for show. The Lord Premier is only trying to get their queen to sign a warship contract. The Lord Premier is informed that Lantern Veron is on Earth, past the Sector 2418 blockade. Theros can't hold the Lord Premier title without his family's influence. Theros orders a team of Lanterns loyal to them to bring him back, or to find someone to blame for his death. John Stewart goes on a soul trek using a ring to traverse his own mind. John battles the radiant dead that is infecting him. When John starts to turn, Lantern Shepherd has to pull him out because they have failed. They are out of time. Metropolis, Steelworks Tower, the Foundry. Lantern Shepherd has a dead Green Lantern ring that had belonged to Veron. John and Steel try to jumpstart the ring with a new power source, Genesis Energy. It works. John puts on the ring as he begins to turn. John finds himself on another soul trek, but this time it's not his essence, but Varan's. John battles Varan and then ends up back at Steelworks. John tells the others that the ring is his, but he still has a connection to the Radiant Dead. He can feel them. Moreover, he can find them. 
I don't know about you, Cletus, but I, I know it's cool to have John manipulate the willpower energy without a ring. But uh, I think it's cool that he got a ring back in this issue. Well, I'm with you, Drew. I, it feels more like Green Lantern. I, I've, I've said this a lot, Drew, where I don't. I feel like sometimes writers feel the need to like go over the top to differentiate the different lanterns. And you know, with like so John, he has to be the god of light. You know, it's the only way his character could possibly work. It's like no, just give him the same uniform or a slightly different uniform in a ring, and then use your writing to portray his personality differently. It's not that hard. I think this would be a great example of that. <laughs> Where, like, I, I think it's great. I think it's awesome he's got the ring back. It feels more like Green Lantern, but, I, you know, it still feels distinctly Jon Stewart throughout this whole book. I didn't get confused about, oh, is this how Jordan, because he's got a ring? I wish more writers would grasp that concept. This was good, Drew. I, I'm really really digging this both both green lantern books but i love that they're doing something different but they both feel like green lantern and Hal's feels like a book for Hal. this book feels like a book for john it, it's they're just the green lantern team is doing a great job right now one thing drew an observation i wanted to talk to you about that we got in this comic that i find interesting and it's been not just this comic, but it's been kind of building up in several other comics that we've seen, is the pretty intense corruption of the United Planets. And I think that's fascinating because, correct me if I'm wrong, Drew, that was a Bendis idea, right? Yes, it was. That was like his pet project. That was like the big thing. He wanted to have the United Planets to sort of, you know, lead into, tie into Legion of Superheroes. And I feel like everybody else has taken that idea and be like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. But what if it was as corrupt as most governments are? <laughs> I mean, they've just like taken that idea and completely just rubbed it down in the mud, which I like, Drew. Like, it, it is interesting to read that. And it feels, frankly, more realistic to read than the very idealistic version that we were getting from Bendis. Yes, it makes it very interesting because we have the mysterious disappearance of the guardians and then you have the united planets control of the green lanterns right now and then the blockade of 28 for sector 2814 or not 28 is it 2814 yes 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 i think i read it wrong earlier <laughs> or, i mean i think i wrote it down wrong earlier i think i said 2418 so it's 2814 apparently i got dyslexic but anyways the we have the blockade so I'm sure the United Plants is behind that too, and um, I, I'm I'm very curious why. I'm very curious about this corrupted United Planets, and I think we're gonna see the Green Lantern. We're gonna see Hal Jordan and John Stewart come together sometime with other Lanterns, and correct the corruption that's in the United Planets. And I see this being a slow burn, and I like that. Like you said, we have two distinct, different Green Lantern books going on, but they're still connected. What's going on in one book is going on in the other book. You know, we still have this yeah. blockade in both books. We still have the disappearance of the Guardians. All very interesting. And we've got we've got Hal Jordan with his ring that's not connected to the other Green Lanterns. And now we have Jon Stewart with his ring that's not connected to the other Green Lanterns. Very interesting. So I, I'm very curious to see where both series go. And I'm very interested when they come together. Because uh, I'm expecting... 
down the line some sort of crossover between these two books where we're going to see Hal and John team up, and I'm excited about that. All right, well, let's move on to our next title for this week, Batman Superman World's Finest number 22. Batman and Superman are fighting a horde of superheroes from Earth-22. Thunderman shows up and has Firestorm knock Superman unconscious with kryptonite gas. Batman and Superman are captured. Batman and Superman are brought before Gog, who tells them he is the bringer of eternal light. He has been gifted the opportunity to gift this world's heroes with ascension to glory. Though these demons have murder in their heart, they hold all life sacred. Gog sentenced them to imprisonment in the catacombs. In their cell, Batman and Superman discover Metron of the New Gods, who tells them he's starving, not for food, but for knowledge. Superman realizes that Gog's throne is Metron's Mobius chair. Metron explains that Gog once lived on Urgrund, home of the then gods, a paradise known as the Third World. This world went to war, a war that Gog condemned. Refusing to pick a side, Gog was exiled into the void until he ended up on primordial Earth. Metron met Gog much later in his travels, and they became friends, watching over the birth of humanity. As time went on, Gog began to care greatly for humans. Humans worshipped him, and in return, adopted his unwavering laws of right and wrong. One day, Metron shared the secret of the multiverse with Gog, as well as the realms that lie beyond, New Genesis and Apocalypse. Gog fell silent for 10,000 years until David arrived on Earth-22. Gog pleaded for the use of the Mobius chair, and when Metron denied him, Gog took it anyways. Since then, Metron has been his prisoner. Batman and Superman of Earth-22 overheard Metron's story and have come as allies. Batman of Earth-22 planted a bug on Batman. Metron explains that Gog plans to couple David's unique ability to traverse dimensions with the power of the Mobius chair, allowing him to push through the cosmic wall surrounding the multiverse and lead an army to wage war against Apocalypse. The Ascension is Gog's name for a battle in which there are no survivors. Gog is deliberately leading Earth's heroes on a suicide mission. Elsewhere, Gog's Saharan Citadel. Gog tells David he must become the ultimate warrior and uses his power to transform him. No longer shall he be called Thunderman. From now on, he shall be called Magog. This was an interesting issue, Drew. I thought we got a pretty quick flip of the Kingdom Come versions of Superman and Batman. I, I, I you know, with with the pace of the comic, I don't know that you could slow it down any, and it would without it feeling too long. But it was a pretty quick transition from what looked like. <laughs> Pretty consistent servitude at the beginning of the issue to full rebellion by the end of the comic. That being said, you know, interesting, you know, interesting developments here. We we see David get transformed into Magog, who is, I'm assuming, is a different Magog from what the story in Kingdom Come, considering this is supposed to take place later. Interesting, Drew. Really interesting. I'm, I'm very curious to see what's, and then we get obviously the suicide. Mission is what it appears to be that Gog is up to, potentially trying to get his own like entry into Valhalla or whatever. I'm very curious to see what the next issue looks like, Drew. I am too. I, I really enjoyed this issue and I'm looking forward to the next one. All right, well, let's move on to our next title for this week Catwoman number 60. 
Catwoman has six lives left. With them, she is fulfilling some previously two deadly missions from her past. Catwoman is after the idol of Bacchus, which was stolen by Eduardo Flamingo, legendary thief and face eater. After his supposed death, Flamingo left the idol to the producer of the Theater of Death. Catwoman's research has brought her to Croatia to the Theater of Death. The performance has already started, so Catwoman makes her way to the catwalk. The announcer welcomes tonight's guest for one night only, Catwoman. Catwoman jumps down from the catwalk and discovers that Eduardo Flamingo is not dead and hiding out here. Catwoman fights Flamingo and takes him out. Someone jabs a needle in Catwoman's neck. Catwoman wakes up with her arms chained. Catwoman escapes and finds Flamingo. She learns from Flamingo that he is just waiting to take back the idol. Catwoman makes a deal with Flamingo to help steal the idol back from the producer. Catwoman steals the idol from the producer's home vault and returns to the theater. Flamingo chases after Catwoman on a motorcycle into traffic. Catwoman tosses the idol in front of a semi and it smashes to pieces. Catwoman gets away in the back of a pickup truck. Later on, Catwoman learns that she did not spend another life. When they stuck her with the poison, it missed the vein and went into the muscle. Catwoman is ready for her next mission. I really did not enjoy this comic, Drew. It was just bad. It was just a bad story. Just The plot didn't make a ton of sense. The artwork was not good in life. I, for me, Drew, I know artwork is subjective, but it really did not do it for me. Oof, I, I'm not, not enjoying this. I agree with you. I didn't care for this issue myself. And uh, I, I, ha- I haven't got into this Catwoman spending these live stories. Besides the stories not being good, one of my problems is, is she, it, it feels like she's wanting to spend these lives instead of trying to preserve them as much as possible. I don't know. I, I just I'm just not caring for this for these stories of Catwoman, and uh, I know it's not going to happen soon. But I hope we move on to something different soon. All right. Well, let's move on to our next title for this week: Nightwing number 109. Bea's brother Dirk just stabbed her and tossed her into the water. Nightwing jumps in after her. In the past, Robin Dick Grayson descends into the Batcave looking for Batman. Instead, Alfred is conducting his lesson for today. Alfred spent years as a combat medic and teaches Dick how to stitch someone up after they've been injured. In the present, Dick just finished stitching up Bea. She calls him Rick and then states she is not dead. Dick informs Bea that Dirk has already announced Bea's death and taken her ship. He's going after the hold. Dick wonders what the hold is and how it came to be. Bea tells him the story. The island, now known as Bloodhaven, used to be part of New Netherland. A monster lurked in the waters surrounding the island. Trade halted, ships were lost, people felt isolated, trapped. A man named Hendrik Blood went out and slayed the beast. He made it a haven and protected it. Hendrik Blood was seen as a hero. People from everywhere came to have their most treasured items guarded by Captain Blood. His influence and power grew, and this has been continued on by his descendants. Bea was homeless and Reuben Blood adopted her after she impressed him by stealing a super yacht owned by an American tycoon and sailed it halfway to the Caribbean when she was only 13. When Dirk comes to claim the crossed keys with his armed men, Nightwing swings aboard his ship. Nightwing takes out his men, 
while Bia frees her crew. Dirk is defeated. Bia is going to drop Dirk off in Norway, where he is wanted for many crimes. Later at the hold, Locker 538 is opened, and Nightwing is given a CD-ROM. The CD-ROM has security footage of Haley's circus from the date Dick Grayson's parents were killed. The footage shows Tony Zucko sabotaging his parents' trapeze. We also had a backup story in this. Beast World Prologue. Gotham. Robin Damian Wayne answers the bat signal and tells Commissioner Montoya that Batman is not coming. He's in Bloodhaven and he's been transformed into a wolf. Robin is concerned that there are not more beast people in Gotham. Robin investigates the Gotham Zoo and finds a hidden lair of beast people led by a woman. Robin is captured by the beast. The mysterious woman infects Robin with a spore, turning him into a cat. I'm not going to lie, Drew. I was uh, I I knew coming in that we were going to wrap up the story, and we talked about it last time that I wasn't really ready for the story to end yet. And this issue didn't really change my mind. It was just such a clean, quick ending from what I felt had been a pretty solid setup for a longer story. I'm not asking for 20 issues or 10 issues, but I just, Drew, I really feel like we could have gotten more out of this, like spent more time in that city, more time on the sea with some other side adventures thrown in. I, I just, it wasn't bad, Drew, by any means, quite the opposite. It was really good and it felt almost like a waste to just move on from the story so quickly. I, I've enjoyed this arc and, Honestly, yeah, I would have liked probably to see more Dick Grayson as a pirate. But uh, we also need to get back to <laughs> we need we need to get back to Bloodhaven and back to what Dick normally does. <laughs> so this was a nice side adventure that didn't go on too long, in my opinion. And uh, we're getting back to the crux of the story, which is Heartless and Tony Zucko. It looks like we're gonna finally get Tony Zucko behind bars. I, I have to admit, though, I did find that being what was in the hold a little underwhelming. I don't know. I don't know. I, I was like, I mean, yeah, I get I get from a, like, personal stakes that that's big for Dick to be able to prove publicly what he's always known, that Zuko killed his parents. Like, I get that. I don't know. I, uh, I don't know. All of this hubbub and adventure drew for what was ultimately a CD of Zuko tampering was a little underwhelming it would have been i don't know I, I don't know the answer to be honest with you drew i don't know what the answer is i don't know what would have been satisfying uh for it for to have been the thing that was being held there but for me that was not it that's understandable i don't know what else could have been there either i mean dick doesn't need any money so right exactly that's the thing like i don't so to be fair i don't know what the answer is and then maybe there isn't one maybe i'm just being too nitpicky just Certainly possible, but when it was a CD and all that was on it was was Zucko, I was like, ah, I mean, I get it. It's not the worst thing. It's absolutely not a like a like a terrible answer. You could have come up with a lot worse, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. It, honestly, I almost would have preferred something stupid. To be honest with you, Drew, something funny. Because, okay, here's my question, Drew. Maybe I'm not remembering right. Didn't Rick actively put it, put whatever was in that there in the hold when he was Rick? I don't remember. 
Did if Rick put something in there, Dick didn't remember it. That's what I thought, but I thought that was the crux of the story that when he was Rick, he had utilized the hold and didn't want to know what it was until he was Dick Grayson again. And the answer being that he had found the footage that proved his parents' murder didn't I was like, wait, well wouldn't why why wouldn't Rick care about that? I know that he was edgy and moody, but I don't think he was that edgy and moody. <laughs> no, I think what it was was he was told about that there was something for him or Nightwing or something, and he didn't want it wasn't for him, so he just said, gotcha, "No gotcha. thanks." That's that what it was. Right. That might be right. We have no idea who put that footage there for him, and I highly doubt it was Batman because if Batman would have had that, they would you know they would have used that against Zucko. So psh, I have no I have no clue who put it there. And maybe that's going to be a mystery they're going to reveal at some point. I don't know. But it's been interesting having Tom Taylor tie the Rick Grayson stuff back into what's going on in Nightwing, making it more relevant because, honestly, I never cared for the Rick Grayson character or that storyline. Yeah, Drew, I got to agree with you. He's done a, a great job, like you said, making that story more relevant. I would argue he doesn't need to do that. We could just pretend it never happened but but if you're going to address it he's done a good job with that yeah before we move on the the backup story (laughs) i didn't really care for it that much basically telling us that damien turned into a cat (laughs) but see this is what all of these side stories are going to be they're just like yeah but what if you know what if aquaman turned into a giraffe wouldn't that be funny and it's like i mean i mean i guess it was it's it's literally the same thing we talked about this already but it's the same thing as the death metal thing where it's like yeah but what if batman was a monster truck <laughs> and, and now it's like okay but what if you know and then insert character insert random animal and like okay it's not that funny guys or it's not that in, like it's really more about the story you tell now this was written by tom taylor so he could be bringing Damien in as a cat into his main story. So that might be why he put this here, but we'll see. All right, well, let's move on to our next title for this week, Superman number nine. Lois is reading Get Well letters to Superman as he recuperates under artificial sunlight after being hit with kryptonite last issue. Perry White puts his campaign on hold while Superman and the city heal. Lena, Lex's daughter, has taken a position at Supercore. The Daily Planet. Lois calls Jimmy and tells him her and Clark are on vacation at the beach. Lois tells Jimmy he is in charge. Back at Supercore, Superman wakes up. Lois gives him a big hug. Mercy comes into the room and tells him to be more careful about the secret identity. She knows. Superman decides that he is going after Farm and Graft. He knows their next target is Marilyn Moonlight. Still weak from his ordeal with the Chained, Superman wants to use Lex's old suit after some upgrades. Superman finds Graft arguing with Marilyn Moonlight and lands between them. Marilyn states she didn't ask for Superman's help. She can handle Graft on her own. Graft's wheelchair transforms into a battle suit and he attacks Superman with kryptonite energy, but Lex's suit protects him. Marilyn shoots at Graft, distracting him, while Superman super punches Graft's suit, destroying it. A ray shoots out of Graf's finger, hitting Marilyn. Both Marilyn and Superman disappear. Lex wonders what happens to Superman, and Mercy replies he is gone. In the past, 
A woman and her two boys are on a train with precious cargo that will turn Metropolis into the city of tomorrow. They enlist the help of Nighthawk and Cinnamon to protect it. Nighthawk and Cinnamon head to the top of the train when a bandit arrives with no guns. Using his heat vision, the bandit forces Nighthawk and Cinnamon to drop their guns. The bandit states that he is robbing this train. To be continued next issue in The Man of Yesterday. I hate Williamson so much, Drew. I just... I... I he is so. And I feel like I'm pretty consistent. I have I have criticized other writers for this as well. He is so obsessed with uh, with setting up the next thing and setting up his next grand idea that he can take credit for. That I feel like he so often forgets to actually just like chill out for a second and tell the story. Now, to be fair, most of the time that story sucks. But <laughs> again, with this issue, Drew, this issue was entirely set up for other stories. What was the actual story told in this issue? We were either wrapping stuff up or we were setting other things up. At no point did we just settle down and tell this week on Superman. It was nothing. It was a bunch of like epilogue and prologue with n nothing in between. Yeah, I can't argue with you there. And I'm sure they haven't stated it, but I'm sure the two young boys are probably farm and graft when they were young. For some reason, they've survived the old West. <laughs> They're still in modern-day Metropolis, and Superman's Superman's going to steal whatever invention they have so he can get back to the back to the present. <laughs> At least that's what it looks like to me. Uh, I think you're probably right, Drew. I honestly don't care enough to an analyze the. <laughs> <laughs> and I I really don't care for Superman and Lex working together. It just feels weird, and then. The fact that we have to put Superman in Lex's suit, I don't know. I don't I don't really care for this issue that much. I yeah, I mean, yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to our last issue for this week, Wonder Woman number 4. The news reports that there was a suicide at Fort Simone in Montana. Private Rafael Delgado, who was involved recently in Operation Lasso Down, where the military failed to arrest Wonder Woman. Investigators have discovered a diary entry he wrote before his death that states, Wonder Woman robbed me of the dignity of my gender, which is a gift from God. His defeat at her hands left him no choice but to end his life. There's an outcry across the Capitol with lawmakers repeatedly labeling Wonder Woman a murderer. A senator from Texas even addressed the Senate, stating that he has no doubts that Wonder Woman was in that room with that hero. She pulled the trigger. Protests continue throughout America to the point where the president must address the nation. Sergeant Steele meets with Amanda Waller, who states that after tonight's presidential speech, they are activating the list. Soldiers won't be enough. They will even let the big cat out. On the day that the president was to make his speech, Wonder Woman was in Phoenix, Arizona, visiting a boy dying of cancer, Jack Cole. Jack was Wonder Woman's biggest fan, and his dying wish was to meet her. Wonder Woman promises to spend the whole day with him. Wonder Woman takes Jack on a ride in the invisible jet. They end up on Paradise Island, where Wonder Woman, after a short confrontation with her sisters, spends the day with Jack. They spar with wooden swords, ride a kanga, throw her tiara, eat fruit, throw the lasso of truth, feed a giant eagle, practice archery, and take a walk on the beach. That evening, while sitting on a rock cliff watching the stars, 
Jack confesses that there is something wrong with him. He thinks he should like Superman, Batman, baseball, and stuff like that for a normal boy. Jack wonders why God made him sick inside. Wonder Woman hugs him and states there is nothing wrong with him. The president has labeled Wonder Woman a clear and present danger to the United States and that Paradise Island and the Amazons are, are part of an elaborate plot to undermine the American people. To be continued. We also had a backup story in this, World's Finest Part 2. At the Fortress of Solitude, John Kent and Damian Wayne are supposed to be watching Lizzie while the Justice League are in another dimension. While the two boys are distracted, Lizzie gets entangled with the Black Mercy. John and Damian blame each other before working together to remove the Black Mercy from Lizzie. Drew, I'm, I'm just loving this Wonder Woman series so far. It's so good. The juxtaposition between the the hatred and lies that on one side that you see compared to what Wonder Woman is actually doing in that moment, taking an entire day in the middle of this huge crisis just to make a sick boy's day is is an incredible it's an incredible idea, Drew, and it's executed so well. And again, I think just encapsulate so well what that character is about and. You know, we I, I've, we've talked about this a couple of times in regards to this series that sometimes, like the New 52, I thought was particularly guilty of this, where they they want to portray Wonder Woman as a badass, right? And so, but they go, they end up going a little too far over the top, and she almost comes across as a bloodthirsty warrior. Again, the New 52, I thought was in particular guilty of that. But this strike has struck such a good balance, Drew, where she has wipe the floor with everybody she's fought, right? Like, she is unquestionably winning, and yet the humanity behind her character is so evident, even in those same scenes where she's dominating in previous issues. King never loses sight of her humanity and what really makes her Wonder Woman. And this issue, just even better, drives home that point so well, where you see, again, just the... the the evil, the bigotry, the hatred on one side, and there's Wonder Woman just doing a you know a small kind act, incredible. I read this issue, and you know I'm reading what the public is doing to Wonder Woman, and I'm like, man, this is spiraling out of control. This lie, and I'm thinking, I can see this happening in the real world. That's why I think that's why this issue is so good. At the same time, you know, the president's giving speech. You have Wonder Woman spending the day with this boy. And, uh, I, oh man, it's, it really tugs on your emotions, this issue did. Or at least it did for me. And, yeah, uh, I agree. And I got, I got to tell you, one of my favorite scenes in this, the one where Wonder Woman's doing push-ups with Jack sitting Indian style on her back. I love that scene. And uh, I, this was just such a great issue. The artwork was awesome. The the lie spinning out of control. The public going crazy. The guy commits suicide. How can you say Wonder Woman's a murderer? She was in the room and pulled the trigger. Come on, dude. I mean, things are just getting out of hand. And Wonder Woman, she's spending the day with this boy like nothing's going on. <laughs> you know, most people would be freaking out. Wonder Woman's just doing her thing. And uh, we... She even comes back to the island and her sisters are ready to fight her. She's like, has this boy here. She brought a male to the island. Oh, no. It's a dying boy with cancer. And they're 
and they're all worried because a male is on the island and they need to fight Wonder Woman. <laughs> and Wonder Woman makes it clear that, you know, she'll fight him if she has to, but uh, they know they're going to lose, so why even try? <laughs> yeah. So, I, I don't know. I loved it. I love watching Jack a chance to fly in the invisible jet. And uh, when Wonder Woman tells him to uncover his eyes, he's like, whoa. You know, th- that would... I was that little boy and I got to go to Paradise Island and spend the day with the Wonder Woman and fly in the invisible jet. That would be freaking awesome <laughs> to spend the day with a superhero like that. I, I, I just love this issue. It was great. The backup story for this was really good, too. Seeing Lizzie with the Black Mercy and what what her desire, what her desires are. And, you know, Tom King does a real good job of writing these three characters together and i enjoyed the backup too agreed uh the artwork was a little bit worse than the the a couple of the previous backups we got so it was my only minor nitpick but otherwise it was uh, again like you said the writing and capturing the the three the younger version of the trinity is really good. i'm really enjoying that dynamic and kind of seeing the upbringing of her via superboy and and Robin is really cool. I wouldn't mind getting a mini series of the uh, Young Trinity written by Tom King. I think that'd be really good. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, that wraps up our comic books talk for this week. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk Sweet Tooth. Hey, Leah. Hey, Sean. You know what now is a good time for? What's that? A promo for the Soul Forge podcast. The Soul Forge? What's that? Oh, it's a show. It's a podcast all about sex and dating. Love and relationships. Pop culture and movie reviews. Adventure. Almost anything you can think of. Definitely. What is it? The Soul Forge. The Soul Forge podcast. Think about it. What if you could bring three experienced producers into your home each week to discuss your favorite movies and the people that made them? That's Tales from Hollywoodland. Your hosts, Arthur, Julian, and Steve, collectively have years of showbiz producing experience. Their weekly show is a fast-paced, fun, and very conversational experience, like spending a good time with your best movie-loving friends and family. Tales from Hollywoodland is available wherever fine podcasts are found. See you at the movies. And we're back. Let's talk Sweet Tooth, Season 2, Episode 4, Bad Man. There is a celebration in the town. When curfew time nears, Amy and Jeopard are kidnapped by the mercenaries that Amy contacted last episode. Because he lied about Roy, the hybrids don't trust Gus anymore, and they state they are going to escape without him. Using the chickens he found last episode at Fort Smith, Dr. Singh thinks he found a cure. Amy negotiates a deal with the Air Lords, leader Dolly. If they can help free the hybrid children from the zoo, they can take whatever spoils of war they find in the place. Bear and her new friends are recruited by the Last Men. The Last Men recruiters are impressed by Bear's skills. Bobby uses Gus's pocket knife to remove his collar. Bobby tells Gus that he trusts him. Gus helps Bobby escape. Bobby wants to find help. Ronnie learns that Johnny is brothers with General Abbott. General Abbott takes Dr. Singh's cure and tells him that him and his wife will be joining him for dinner. Jeopard classes with one of the airlords named Rufus, who hates hybrids. 
Jeopard reveals to Amy that when he was in The Last Men, he used to round up the hybrids and bring them in. When the guards bring food to the hybrids, they notice Gus's stuffed animal, Dog. Wondering where it came from, the guards start tormenting the hybrids. Gus attacks the guards with his antlers and then runs out the open door. While Gus is trying to escape, he runs right into General Abbott. Bobby makes it to freedom. When the Air Lords leave for their mission, Jeopard is told that he is not coming. Amy tells Jeopard that she will rescue Gus, but Jeopard can no longer be a part of Gus's life. He is better off without her. Jeopard steals an ice cream truck and goes on the mission by himself. There's a lot I liked in this episode, Drew. The dinner scene with the general I particularly liked. I thought it was a one of the one of the first times we've gotten to really kind of get to know the general. Like I know he's been in the show the whole time, but he's always sort of briefly menacing on screen before leaving, right? I feel like this was we really were, you know, got to sink our teeth into his character a little bit, and that I enjoyed that quite a bit, especially with the revelation that that the second in command is his brother. I liked that a lot. I had some questions as to why their accents are different, but that's for another day. (laughs) (laughs) Drew, that dinner scene was great because I've really, I've enjoyed the general as a villain. I think that the actor has done a great job with him, but I liked, like, you know what I mean? Like decompressing a little bit and getting a little bit more time with him. I mean, he's gotten more screen time in general this season, but this episode in particular, I felt like I really kind of, we got a little bit more of what makes him tick. On top of that, we're seeing what I I feel like we've talked about this throughout the first few episodes, Drew, but I felt like this episode really kind of drove home the point of seeing the the doctor and his wife going on diverging paths, right? He keeps kind of falling further and further down into the darkness, and she seems to be kind of slowly maybe potentially finding her way towards some some version of redemption and that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because it really does feel like those two are falling further apart on terms of their morality path now one thing i want to mention about that dinner that i thought was interesting was you had ronnie kind of being defiant during that dinner yes yes and I, th- I found that interesting because Dr. Singh himself, like you said, it seems to be kind of going down that dark path. He seems to be aligning up with what General Abbott's vision is. And Ronnie seems to be doing the opposite. You know, she she's kind of defying General Abbott there. And I'm sure he was annoyed by that, though he tried not to show it. You had Ronnie who influenced what they were eating for dinner invited his brother to dinner, which I'm sure he didn't really care for. It was interesting how she was kind of manipulating their dinner. And uh, it, it's interesting. I see I see them butting heads in the near future. And um, Dr. Singh is going to be in the middle. I, I'm, I'm very curious to see how that plays out. The other thing I thought was interesting was we saw Bobby get to freedom. And uh, at, by the end of the episode i was very curious because we saw jeopard not going the plane he's in the ice cream truck i'm very curious if he's going to come across bobby and pick him up in the next episode on his way to the zoo i'm very interested Uh, we have to talk about the shawshank redemption scene with bobby that i couldn't believe that that cracked me up when bobby when bobby gets his way out of the tunnel and it's in the rainstorm 
and he puts his hands out up to the raining sky. That's Shawshank, man. Have you seen Shawshank? Yeah, but not for a long time. <laughs> oh, that's the, that's the same. When Andy Dufresne finally escapes, it's almost to a T the same. T they are very intentionally referencing that scene. I couldn't, I was not expecting that, Drew, at all. I was like, wait, are we, we doing Shawshank right now? <laughs> <laughs> it's, I haven't seen that movie for quite a while. And I know we have it on DVD. I, I've actually thought about, actually thought about um, watching it in the last year, and uh, well, then we ended up not watching it. But um, so it's been a little bit since I've seen that. But now that you mentioned it, yeah, I do remember that scene, and I didn't connect the dots because it's been a while since I've seen it. One thing I did want to comment on Drew also that I thought this was a little wonky this episode is it felt like they were playing a little fast and loose with the progression of time because it felt like some scenes were within a single day at at the zoo that felt like a, at most two days had passed right at most if not just a single day at the boot camp it felt like like a decent amount of time was supposed to have passed there. And then again, more than certainly more than two days with the mercenary group that Big Man goes to. And I understand that we can be not necessarily at the same moment in time, but I feel like the show, generally speaking, has kind of lined up the events or at least portrayed them as such. And this episode, that got a little confusing because... I'm pretty confident they're not trying to say that Bear went to went to and graduated last man boot camp within a day. Yeah, I know what you mean. It felt like all they did was test them and then throw those two out in the field. Bear and Dude, again, I'm not saying I'm not saying a massive amount of time had passed, but that certainly I feel like even within those scenes, I felt like there was a suggestion that time did pass which would make sense. And I, that I get that. And it was just sort of, we, because we're in three different spots with our story, you know, I understand, but it, it would be, I felt like they were less clear this episode drew, especially because with the rain and the setting, it felt like they were trying to stay. All of this was happening simultaneously. And that just didn't totally make sense. And I don't think that it was supposed to be happening simultaneously. Yeah. I'm sure you're right about that. It doesn't bother me too much. A minor complaint. I, I very much enjoyed the episode. I'm really looking forward to next episode because I think we're going to, because it's building to the, it's building to the uh, breakout of the hybrids. And uh, I think that's going to be very interesting. I think that's going to go, I think that could get potentially ugly. Oh yeah. Something's going to go sideways. I can tell already. All right. Well, that wraps up our episode for this week. Do you have a shout out, Cletus? Yeah. So it's, it, Drew, I will admit some ignorance on this. I have not read this comic, but we talked last week, or last time we reviewed Batman Superman, that I wasn't sure if I knew Gog had been a character before, not in Kingdom Come, but in something else kind of inspired or branching out from it. And I thought maybe it was the Thy Kingdom Come storyline by Jeff Johns, but the research that I can find, Drew, he actually popped up in a brief story called The Kingdom, which is set after Kingdom Come. Did you ever read that? Nope. Yeah, I haven't either. So I can't tell you a lot from the brief summary that I'm reading. Gog, that version of Gog, which also created by Mark Wade. So this is a Mark Wade story. 
Gog is is a boy who is rescued by Superman from the disaster in Kansas that starts the whole plot of Kingdom Come. For those who haven't read it, you know, there's a there's a massive superhero disaster that kills millions of people in Kansas and then kind of kicks off the plot of Kingdom Come. Well, one of those boys gets saved by Superman and at least temporarily raised by him. And that guy eventually goes on to become a villain called Gog and is the central villain of this two-part story called The Kingdom. I haven't read it. Reading through the summary of it, it didn't totally make sense to me, so I feel like I need to read it to make sense. But the character, again, I was pretty sure it had come from something tied to Kingdom Come before, and not just the Magog character. And, in fact, it has. And also written by Mark Wade. So this is clearly an idea that he's been jostling around with before and has maybe come up with a different way to do the story, tell the story, because this is very different from... The Gog that we're getting right now, Drew, is not the Gog that is in the kingdom. And so that almost makes me wonder if if Wade is sort of trying to do a redo of that story in some ways. That's interesting. All right, and for my shout-out, I'm going to shout-out about Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan because I got to see it on the big screen last night. It's not the first time I've seen it on the big screen. I saw it... In the, I think it was in the last five years or something, on the big screen before for some anniversary of it. So I was happy I got to go see it down at the Art Craft last night. Or it wasn't last night, it was on Friday. Uh, the other day. So that was awesome. And it, it's got me interested in seeing some of the old Star Trek movies that I haven't seen for a while again. Not that I have time to do that, but <laughs> it got me in the mood for it, though. All right, if you'd like to comment on anything we've talked about this week, you can reach us at our feedback line, 317-455-8411. Leave us a message, text us, or you can email us at earthstationdcu at gmail.com. All right, Cletus, coming up next week, we've got The Penguin, Amazon's Attack, Alan Scott Green Lantern, Action Comics Annual, Detective Comics, Justice Society of America, The Flash, Titans, Titans Beast World, and the next episode of Sweet Tooth. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. In brightest day, in blackest night, no evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's light beware my power. Green Lantern's light. I'm off. Where are you going? I've got to go punch a clock with my other boss. I can see where this is going to be a long commute. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.